Hello, you're listening to Perpetual Learning. I'm Manjula Selvaraja. I'll be asking the questions. And I'm Sudan Siva, the one who hopefully has some answers. <laughs> Is that tough? Do you feel like I'm asking you tough questions? Yeah. No, it's, it's great. Definitely uh, pushes me to uh, make sure I know my stuff before I talk with you. Well, that's good. That's good to hear. And uh, really interesting topic that we have on the deck today, Charter City. So so let's kick this off. Uh, I, you know, I found where you started your newsletter really interesting because when I saw the title, I thought, where, where did he get this idea? And it starts off with you making an observation on immigration now versus, um, versus in the past when our families came to this country. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll start off by saying that, yeah, I'm very grateful for all the opportunities that Canada has given to my family and myself. I definitely would not be where I am today without all the benefits that this country provides. And, you know, immigration and immigrants continue to be a key part of our growth uh, from a demographic perspective in Canada. And, and, you know, we wouldn't be essentially growing as a nation um, without the constant influx of newcomers. And mm. with that said, I feel like our systems have become stale, right? And, and you know, Basically, what that means is, you know, not a lot of changes, not a lot of innovation, let's call it over the past 5, 10, 15, 20 years, right? And all you need to do is really walk down or or walk through a hospital, right? See the long waiting times, see how they deal with non-urgent cases. Um, Go to, you know, one of our schools, right? You know, and, and you'll find that teachers are often relying on the same tools that, you know, you and I used when we were in school. And, and, you know, ultimately I'm worried that, you know, when you look at, you know, each component of the system, uh, you know, they aren't getting, you know, and and they being, you know, younger generations, immigrants in in particular, aren't getting the same benefits that, you know, I definitely got, especially in, you know, what I call our time of need, which is when, you know, you're just starting out in Canada, starting to kind of establish that foundation and ideally kind of build, you know, yourself and, and your respective families off of. Hmm. Let's go back to that scene that you that you were painting of walking down a hallway at a hospital. You know, you say that there are holes in our medical infrastructure even before the pandemic. What do you mean? Yeah, I mean, it didn't necessarily get the breaking news attention from, you know, the media. But, you know, a lot of our hospitals were already hitting capacity with, you know, far smaller outbreaks of the flu, right? And so, yes, COVID is, you know, to an extent, a once in a lifetime type pandemic, but our capacity issues aren't a special situation that will only happen now and never happen again. Right. And I think that's the inherent assumption that a lot of us have made kind of viewing a lot of these healthcare capacity related problems. And, you know, let's just think about how much Ontario has expanded and grown over the past 30 years. Yet, you know, we've only built one net new hospital. We are not counting replacement buildings um, for our population in the past 30 years. Right. And we added 5 million 
new residents. And I, I suspect that number is understated, right? And so, you know, think about how much we've grown as a population to only add one new hospital is uh, quite, you know, quite ridiculous, right? And, and you know, our problems feel quite obvious and avoidable, um, you know, if we only had a bit of foresight and, and, you know, to me, quite honestly, common sense. I mean, you're adding new hospitals as you build more houses and add more people from an economic perspective, just it's absolutely the right thing to do. You know, I always think that at some point people build these systems uh, thinking that, that, oh, we'll be able to meet the population, you know, how the population is growing in the next five, 10 years, and then you beat those numbers. And suddenly that, that extra buffer that you had is all gone. And, and that could be part of the problem too. Now, some of the numbers that you quoted were also in this piece in the hub that was written by Ash Navabi, a Toronto economist. And, and he proposes a somewhat controversial solution to address the issue. What's the case he makes? Yeah, I mean, he makes a case to open up private healthcare right now. You can't build you know, private hospitals, which, I mean, as a Canadian, it almost sounds sacrilegious to say, just given how much pride we hold over our free healthcare system, I think it's almost <laughs> a part of our identity it uh, is, at, it is. at this point. So, yeah, yeah, I think he might be right, though. I think, you know, we do need to allow private markets to compete with the public sector or else we're going to face problems with capacity and quality of healthcare for a very long time. And, and you know, I don't think there's any other, you know, easy way of getting ahead of it apart from open, opening things up. What's interesting, that's certainly a very a controversial proposal because that conversation, again, you said, you know, the idea of public health care is really tied to our identity. I feel like even when you talk to Americans, you know, the first thing that they say is, oh, yeah, you, you guys have free health care, right? So it's something that we're incredibly proud of. And I think certainly, uh, you know, when you're talking about privatizing um, or even if you're creating a, a certain segment of that system that is yeah. that is being privatized, that's that's a huge debate that will have to to have have to happen. But you also have similar concerns about uh, the investment or or lack of. In other parts of our infrastructure, the transportation system is an example. Talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, it's very similar story to the healthcare system, right? We, we have a state-of-the-art system that's 20 years plus old, right? And we've only, you know, built communities and, and you know, really have focused on communities with the assumption that everyone will have access to a car, not necessarily public transportation. And, and that's to you know, a fairly significant detriment, especially for you know, lower income families or people who are just starting out in Canada. So let's get into that because the people that are affected by this, um, you propose, are disadvantaged people, immigrant families. How does the underinvestment in, let's take transportation as an example, how does that affect them? Yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, lower income families end up having to spend a larger portion of their income on transportation. So let's take as an example, someone who's making $20 an hour, taking, you know, perhaps the, the GO train every day to 
to work, which, you know, for context, for listeners, you know, takes, you know, or costs 10 to $15 one way. You're, mm-hmm. you're basically spending close to a quarter of your day to just break even from transportation costs alone. Right? And, you know, I think I share a study in the newsletter where, you know, lower income families spend roughly 20 to 30% of their income on transportation, which is, you know, when you factor in living expenses, especially, you know, rent and, and food and whatnot, um, especially today, it, it's pretty tough to make things work under the current system, right? And, and so you can only imagine the increased level of stress that people place on, on their incomes, um, you know, when they have to spend, you know, 20 to 30%, which is very substantial um, on transportation alone. So because we both love talking about startups, you offer a startup-like solution uh, to this issue of uh, underinvested in and underbuilt cities, uh, charter cities. What, what is a charter city? Yeah, it, you know, to keep it simple, I think, you know, the idea of charter cities is basically the idea of building a city from scratch, right? It's a concept that a lot of people have thought through in the past, you know, from Walt Disney um, in, in the 1960s to, you know, as recently as Elon Musk um, with, with the work that he's doing in, in Texas. And, you know, it's an idea that continues to be explored today, um, albeit in, in third world countries where costs are lower and, and there's, you know, less regulatory oversight, um, allowing them to kind of have creativity around being able to, you know, build cities, build, you know, new governance structures, systems, um, and, and really take a completely different look to, uh, to how we would build a city today. Tell me about the VC firm that's working on, on building these cities. Yeah, so there's a VC firm called Autonomous Capital. It's a, it's a VC firm backed by, you know, a number of very smart, well-off, Silicon Valley founders and investors, Peter Thiel, Nabal Ravikant, you know, and, and so on. And you know, they're, they're dedicated towards backing founders, which I find really interesting, who essentially want to build a charter city, you know, while partnering with local governments and communities. And I think the last bit is probably an area that needs to be flushed out, to be honest, but it is, it's an interesting concept because, you know, if, if you know, they are able to find a successful model it can be replicated by not just, you know, other VC firms, but, you know, larger governments as well, you know, where the federal government could back, you know, different municipal governments kind of starting their own city. And, and so, yeah, definitely a very interesting idea that um, hopefully will, will work, you know, in years to come. Now, Prospera is one such example. What, what is it? Describe it to us. Yeah, so it's it's a new kind of administrative division in Honduras called, you know, ZD. Uh, you know, basically you have your own economic civil law, you have your own admin systems, you know, you, you basically get to run your own independent government-like structure within the broader Honduran government. And, and think of it as an orphan startup um, within a larger, perhaps, corporate parent and in it's still early days, right? Um, but I'm interested to see how it plays out because, you know, even if the entire project isn't a success, you can definitely take bits and pieces and copy ideas for other developments around the world. 
You know, I look at some of the cities that are mentioned around this concept as being possible models for the concept or, or where they can get ideas from the Shenzhen economic zone, Singapore, Dubai. There are critics who would point out that that these cities are big, like big shopping malls. They're shaped by the needs of capitalism with pressing human rights issues. Are these really better cities to live in or just better for business, easier for business? Yeah, it's it's a fair point, but I think, you know, there's a lot of context that gets lost when critics make these kind of comments, right? And I think, you know, first off, we should marvel at the fact that they were able to build cities, literally cities, and in Singapore's case, the country, from scratch. They obviously didn't get everything right, but, you know, I think we'll be far worse off if we try and try to build the perfect city. Right. And I think it's very important to kind of understand, um, you know, what these cities got right, what they got wrong from a development perspective and, and kind of continue on and continue building. And the potential here is that some of the learnings that they have can actually be implemented at, at existing cities. Now, that's a possibility. It's It's hard to imagine how that may work, but you never know. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, I mean, you see certain, you know, mayors trying to take a bit more of a public profile, right? Like Francis Suarez in, in, in Miami, perhaps on Twitter, if, if any of you are following. But, you know, I think, you know, it, it will be interesting to see, you know, public officials, mayors, premiers, pre- like, you know, presidents, prime ministers, whatever the case might be, to take more of a founder-like approach and founder-type care um, into, you know, the area that they govern to help, you know, apply some of these lessons and learnings from, you know, cities that are being built from scratch and, and kind of taking that approach towards existing development. I think that's probably one of the more exciting opportunities. And I think hopefully, you know, these existing positions within um, existing governments become a lot more attractive as a result as well. You know, it's interesting that, that I find that idea of, of city leaders with, with kind of a founder's perspective approaching this interesting. But when I hear the word startup mentioned over, over in that area, I get nervous because I think that startups are okay with seeking forgiveness later and, um, breaking things and moving fast. And and I just, I, I think that, that when you talk about a city, pardon me, that's my something going off at my end. But I think that when you talk about a city, um, do you want me to say that again? I don't think we can edit that out. Can we, Sudan? Uh, no, that's fine. We can keep okay. going. Okay. Uh, that must be my timer. Um, I think that that's the, that's the only thing that, that worries me that, that there are startups that have that mentality or the startup ecosystem has that mentality. It's rewarded in certain cases. And, and more, my worry is using that, um, when you're dealing with the public and you're dealing with humans and their needs. It concerns me. But anyway, this is still an interesting uh, area to watch. The last point that I'll make is on a completely unrelated note. Have you ever been to Singapore? Unfortunately, I have not, but it is on my list of things to do. I've been slowly reading uh, Lee Kuan Yew's book, uh, From Third World to First, highly recommended. Um, oh, really? And, and, you know, definitely okay. have 
a lot of admiration for the way the government operates and the systems uh, they've built. So yeah, definitely on my list of places to go. Oh, that's interesting. I think I would read it um, simply out of curiosity. I'll certainly add it to my list of books I hope to read, may never get to, but I hope to read. (laughs) But I just have to say, uh, first of all, it has incredible street food. And I did a really interesting thing that that when I was there, uh, someone recommended it and I thought, oh, I haven't done this before. I may as well try it. I took a cooking course from a local person who who basically runs cooking courses out of her home and learned to make this mean shrimp curry with sort of, you know, 10 other people that I didn't know. Um, and uh, you get and we cooked in her outdoor kitchen, which was beautiful. It was like this little tropical paradise. You get a cooked meal at the end incredible travel experience and I felt that because the city to me did feel a bit like a big shopping mall that that felt like a really unique experience uh, where you talk to someone who kind of lives and maneuvers around the city but if you're my gosh I I will look up the name for you if you're ever heading there pin a note on it and say you're going to reach Manjula to get the name of that (laughs) of that lady absolutely absolutely we'll definitely take you up on that Okay. Great. Well, thank you. And uh, we'll talk next week. All right. Chat soon.